hymns beginning to sound that will Proverbs chapter beginning with verse 12. I wisdom dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasures. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, his first acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he'd made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The word of the Lord. And then our gospel reading, which deepens this theme and begins to point to the one in whom it is fulfilled, is from John chapter 1, this beautiful prologue of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love Eugene Peterson's message at that point. He said the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The gospel of Christ, thanks be to God. And our study again, we return to Colossians chapter one, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 23, where we find the heart of Paul's great theme. As we saw last week, he's writing this letter to a church that he did not plant, that he has not visited. It's a kind of grandchild of his. It was planted, it's believed, by the church in Ephesus, which Paul had planted, and its church planter was Epaphras, who was now with Paul. Paul's in prison, and Epaphras has told him about a struggle that this church is having, not by trying to reduce the gospel, but by doing something just as dangerous. They're adding to the gospel. They're thinking that to truly be spiritual, you need not just the gospel, but you also need uh, speculative philosophy, and you need mystical experience, and you need ascetic practices, the observation of certain spiritual disciplines. Now, I need this text badly. I love preaching against reductions of the gospel because that's not my particular sin. I'm not drawn to it. But I do find myself by nature adding to the gospel, thinking, okay, because I grew up in circles that did that. We were taught when I was growing up that you were truly holy if you didn't drink, dance, smoke, play cards, go to movies, or go with girls who did any of those things. And of course, there may be reason not to do any of those things, but that is not biblical holiness. And this tendency to think, okay, you know, I really need to get back what new book is out? What new method of pursuing Christ is out there? And he's writing this not because there aren't new adventures to be had in the life of the Spirit, but he wants us not to fail to realize the full and utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And the way to show us the sufficiency of Christ is by showing us the supremacy of Christ. So our text this morning and I know we've had a lot of reading this morning, but the better part of any Sunday is hearing God's word, so I'll make no apology. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. He has told us in the previous verse that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his son whom he loves, and now he's telling us who this son is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him 
and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul begins this majestic passage out on the very edges of the cosmos, and then he moves in in a series of three concentric circles until in the final one he's right down where you and I live our little lives. And he's wanting to show us the sheer and utter preeminence and therefore sufficiency of Christ in every area that we confront, beginning with this vast and glorious cosmos. And we know far more about its vastness now than Paul did when he was writing, and yet we've not begun <laughs> to grasp the riches of the extent and the glory uh, of this cosmos which God created. So this is the move. You can think about this as a hymn of three verses. Actually, the first two verses are clearly parallel to each other. The last verse is a kind of application, as we'll see. And I'll probably take a little bit longer on the first verse, so don't get nervous trying to parse out if he took, is he going to take that long on each verse? No, because once we get the first verse, we've, we've pretty well got what's coming. There he shows the framework. The first verse, each of these, there are nine verses that we read, each is three verses. So verses 15, 16, and 17, he's talking about Christ as preeminent in all of the creation, he is Lord of the cosmos. And in the next three verses, the middle three, verses 19, verses 18, 19, 20, is that right? 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. Uh, in those three verses, he is speaking of the preeminence of Christ in the new creation. He is Lord of the church. And finally, he turns and says, and you, in the final three verses, 20, uh, 19, 20, 21, is that? No, 20, 21, 22, 23, something in there. You can parse them out. Uh, 21, 22, 23, sorry. But the key is that that is the move that he's making in order to start out there and show the vast, glorious supremacy of Christ and then bring it home to where you and I live. So in these first two particularly, there are three parallel moves that he makes that are important for us to grasp if we are truly to know, begin to know, and worship 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by saying that he is the image of the invisible God. Now this is crucial. Why, why in the law were the people of Israel told not to make images? Well, the reason is because God made an image of himself. Humanity made in the image and likeness of God. And we're not seek to, act, to seek to add to that image by making images that we bow down to worship, nor are we to worship in ourselves the image of God, but we are to see what God has done, how in the midst of his creation he has dignified humanity. And Christ is the first of all, the firstborn of all the creation. And so in that, we see the first two moves. First of all, if we would know who this creator is, who spoke this vast and glorious cosmos into being, we have only to look at Jesus. I want to be careful in saying this because I, I don't want to misspeak, but I do think that most of us operatively don't think in terms of one God, but in terms of three. We think of the Father, we think of the Son, we think of the Holy Spirit. We know that somehow in the mystery of the Trinity it's one God, but it's easy for us to really think of them as not the one God and to get into the kind of thinking where the Father is angry with me. The Father is sitting on his throne and we've messed up everything and I've messed up. And, but thank God Jesus is kind of between us, keeping him from being able to take a punch at me. And uh, the Holy Spirit, well, you know, I'll deal with that later when I get all this figured out. One God, yet one God in three persons. And in the mystery of the incarnation, God's Son, a person in that Godhead, joins himself to humanity, not just for time, but forever. Because even now, having accomplished redemption, as we'll see in a minute, having returned to the Father, there stands in the presence of God, the God-man, in the mystery of it all, who who has the emblems of his sacrifice on our behalf, all of that is to say, when you and I are feeling far away and distant from God, and, and you're just longing to know him, but you feel as though I've blown it too much, I've done too much, I'm too wicked, I'm too much of a sinner, I've made him too many promises. Look at Jesus. He's the one whom the religious people did not like because he had table fellowship with sinners whom the religious people would not have gotten close to. He sat down and ate with people. He let a, a, a woman with a bad reputation break into a party in the home of a Pharisee and weep on his feet and wipe his feet with her hair. And the, the Pharisees sitting at table said, if he were a true prophet, he'd know who this woman is and wouldn't let her touch him. And he said, let me ask you a question. And he tells that beautiful parable of the person who's been forgiven very little and someone who's been forgiven an un, 
unaccountable death. And he says, which, which was more grateful to have the death cancel? Yes. And he says, she's been forgiven much. She loves much. Brothers and sisters, the enemy of our soul always wants us to think that we just aren't good enough for God to love us. And we aren't, which is the marvel of, us, of it all. <laughs> we don't deserve his love. That's why it's grace. And the one who is the firstborn of creation has come to show us in the midst of this creation who God is. And that's where we look to see him. That's the great creator who spoke all this. It's the same one who had table fellowship with the broken and the sinners and the despised. But in doing that, secondly, he also shows us who we are meant to be. Don't ever think, oh, if only I could imagine for a moment what this world would be like if humanity hadn't rebelled against God. All you have to do is, again, look at Jesus. Because he is showing us not only who God the Father is, who God the Spirit is, God the Son, but he is showing us who we are meant to be. And at the heart of it, as he himself said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. This is the first and great command, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What is God looking for from this broken humanity? He's looking for lovers, for people who will love him and love one another. That's what it's about. And so, finally, in this first, philosophers and physicists and cosmologists seek a single unifying theory that will explain all that is. And it always eludes them. Why? Because the single unifying principle of it all is Jesus Christ, God's Son. He says, verse uh, 17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's the one from whom, through whom, for whom are all things. And he's the one who holds all of this together. It's why entropy hasn't ended us yet, because he's holding us together. So you move to the second stanza, and it's completely parallel. He has just said that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now he says he's the head of his body, the church, and he is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, God will not be put off his great redemptive plan in creating this world. That's the whole problem. And again, please hear me well. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not mocking people who say when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. Just remember that that is not our final destiny. And the martyrs there beneath the altar are crying out, how long? How long until you finish this? Judge the wicked. Why? Because our destiny is heaven on earth, the new heaven, the new earth, the new cosmos. Paul says in Romans 8 that 
the creation itself is groaning like a woman in travail because it's been delivered over to entropic doom because of our sin. But it's awaiting its own resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. Our destiny is not to be disembodied spirits floating around on clouds, but embodied, resurrected, glorified men and women in the glorified and new earth. And that's our destiny. And so he's come as the firstborn from the dead in order to begin this work of renewal. And the church of Jesus Christ is not to be a little enclave where we can go get away from the world. Our whole purpose, he has redeemed us for the sake of the world. Why did he call Abraham? He said, so that through you, all the nations of the earth may be blessed. Why did Jesus come? In order that the world might know that those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Why does he call people to himself? Why does he elect us? Because he entrusts us with the gospel of his grace for the sake of the world. And that's why this individual idea that, you know, well, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm saved and I'm going to go straight up when I die. You know, they can all go to hell, but I'm going to go straight up. And some of the greatest theologians have talked like that. I mean, you know, I, I, the great Thomas Aquinas in his magisterial, uh, unfinished theological work said one of the pleasures of heaven will be contemplating the agonies of people in hell. And I think, what kind of a person do you become in heaven to family members and, you know, people you like? It's just, no. Our purposes are redemptive. And that's why you're not a Lone Ranger Christian. You're to be part of the community of God's people because we are to be a picture to the world around us of what it begins to look like when the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God begins to, to give little pictures of what it's going to look like one day. We're to be a picture of that kind of loving community. That's why it's great to, you know, I'm grateful to have served this country and to, I, I still vote even though, you know, I feel a little bit like, uh, I did, okay, I've got time for one story. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't plan this, but you know me by now. Um, you may know that story, uh, Love Child, of, of the guy who'd gone down to, uh, I think it was Papua New Guinea, where, where there was a, a tribe that was so good at bringing people in, making them feel like honored guests. And then when they had them all set for their dinner, they'd kill them and eat them. And everybody knew it, but they were so good that anybody who ended up with the tribe thought they were the exception. They were the, you know, they were the one that was going to get uh, honored, and instead they'd always get eaten. And uh, there was a gospel end to it from a missionary that went to them. But I remember when they first made that presentation and my older brother, who was leading worship, uh, said afterward, you know, he said, as I listened, I found it impossible to believe that people who knew how these folk behaved would still be willing to trust them. And he said, but then I remembered I'd voted in the last election. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, you know. that did have something to do with something. We, the key is, 
We are to be the picture in the midst of that kind of a world. Even when we're addressing social issues that matter to us, not to be ugly culture warriors. Nobody will ever want to know Jesus Christ if we're just another angry special interest group in vain for our political or cult. Now, I'm not saying we don't stand for truth in the public square, but we should do it as those who realize every one of these people I'm disagreeing with was also made in the image and likeness of God and is also someone for whom I should be longing above all, not that they agree with me on this, but that they know the Lord. And that's what I'm here for. And they need to see in me someone who's going to treat them completely differently, even in the midst of a great disagreement. So that's what the church is, that's what the church is to be. So he says, this is what he's come to show us. And he shows us who the great redeemer is, just as he shows us who the great creator is. How does he do that? He says he is filled with all of the fullness of God, the pleroma, the fullness of God, dwelling in this one. So he shows us God as the redeemer, the lover of our souls. And just as he is the integrating principle of the cosmos, the one who holds all things together, he says here that he's the one who has reconciled us by his blood. You see the beautiful parallelism. He does the, the, cre the old creation and then the new creation. Firstborn of, of creation, firstborn from the dead. The one who is the image of the invisible God and the one who is filled with all of the fullness of God. The one who holds all things together and the one who has redeemed us with his blood and has bought us and joined us together with him. So all of that is to say, when you think about EP and God's call to EP, it is first and foremost to be people entrusted with the gospel, not just to be told, but to be walked out in a way that people will have reason to believe that they, this might be true. These people don't relate to each other the way that we do out there. Not that we're perfect, not that we won't sometimes get crossways with each other, but we're different because we're quick to ask forgiveness. We're quick to confess. We're quick to repent and turn. We're quick to reach out and come together. And so he says, and you, here's where you were. You were alienated. You were running away from God. Now here, may I take one final blow at kind of the language that we so often use. We'll say, and often to little children, have you given your heart to Jesus? Now that's, that's a beautiful expression. I grew up with it. But you'll, you won't find it anywhere in the Bible. Uh, I revered Billy Graham. Thank God for his great ministry. But his magazine was called Decision Magazine. And the implication was that we're the ones who do it. Have you decided for Jesus? Now, his theology and his preaching was much better than that. Unfortunately, the magazine kept the title. But that's not, you won't find any of that stuff here. How does he save us? Does he say, please? Well, every head is bowed and every eye is closed and we play one more verse. Won't somebody slip up your hand so that I don't feel as though the morning was wasted? No. He says this. You 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He does it. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, does that mean that we're merely passive? No. He immediately goes on to say, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, and you say, how am I going to do that? How can I ever remain stable and steadfast? And the answer he's just given, that he's the one who does it, and I think he's most beautifully, powerfully stated in his beautiful benediction at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. I don't sanctify myself. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can I possibly do that? I know myself. I... He says, he who has called you is faithful. And he will surely do it. That's why we sing his praises. That's why we sing beyond ourselves here. I mean, lots of the songs that we sing, I love. I'd never, by the way, heard that last, uh, the, the offertory. And my goodness, that captured this whole thing from the cosmic down to the personal application. It's so moving and beautiful. But when, whenever we sing th songs that speak of, you know, there's no other name to me than Jesus. I don't want there to be any other name. But sometimes there is. Whoever I think I need to help me with something, you know? Uh, what, whatever I think in this moment I need to help my kids or to make my life richer or more complete. We're always battling this. We're always, if we're aware, battling again against the idols of our hearts. John Calvin, in a beautiful line, said, our hearts are idol-making factories. We, we offer it all to the Lord, and we wake up the next day, and what's that about? John Piper put it this way. He said, I don't wake up a Christian. I have to become one all over again every day. Now, I didn't mean he lost his salvation, but he just meant, yes, we're in this battle, but the battle is the Lord's. He has joined us to himself. He has put his spirit in us. We are united with Christ. All that is his is ours. He is filled with the fullness of God, and I am a part of him. So go out and live your life with joyful confidence. You're going to mess up. He knows it. He redeemed you knowing it. He loves you knowing it. He sees you as you will one day be, knowing everything about you today. And it doesn't for a moment surprise you. We surprise ourselves, we disappoint ourselves, but he has known us from before time and loves us with an everlasting love. Would you stand? Would you stand? Father, thank you. Thank you that... Salvation is yours, and we are yours. And you are the one who has done it and shall do it. And we would, for that reason, not turn to dust and ashes and trust.
the things that are passing away to, to give us and to do for us what only you can do. So hear us as in our hearts we respond to whatever your spirit is saying to us this morning. Would you please stand with us and sing?